Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. First time you you realize there's something else you're meant to do, or you feel that there's something else you're meant to do, it's really hard. Laura Weiss knew she was destined to be an architect. And after earning an undergraduate and master's degree in architecture, her fate seemed all but sealed. That is, until she decided to change everything less than a decade later. You see, she had realized that while she loved architecture, it wasn't quite for her. So she decided to follow another passion and get an MBA from MIT. After graduating, she found a home for herself in the emerging field of design thinking combining her love of design and business as a consultant at IDEO for almost 10 years. Today, Laura is focused on helping others navigate tricky moments in their careers and grow design leaders through her work as a professor and as a coach. I've noticed that more and more people are turning to professional coaches as a way to grow, transition, and find fulfillment in their work. So I wanted to talk to Laura about what it means to be a coach and what you can gain from having a coach. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, a platform that makes qualitative research fun again. From recruitment, project design to interviews, you'll get that feeling that got you interested in user-centered work in the first place. Capture remote insights that spark your next big aha moment. Check out dscout.com slash mm to get started. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Coaching for Creative Professionals. I'm so excited to have Laura Weiss with me today on the show, and I thought, Laura, that we could start with just a brief introduction. Sure, happy to. Um, I am a facilitator, a mediator, a consultant, and a coach for creative professionals. So, Laura, I, you know, it's unusual for somebody to have so many different roles. How did you get involved in in all of these different things? How did you get to yeah. this point in your career? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually... Um, paused at a point a year or two ago and, and actually asked myself that same question. And I actually realized that I could draw what my career looks like. It kind of made sense when I made it visual. Um, and the way I, I, I thought about it was that most people I know or people that I've, I've come to know, um, their career kind of looks like a pyramid. If you picture a pyramid where they come out of high school, they're not really sure what they might be interested in. They might have an interest, but they use college to explore different options. They might eventually settle on a major, and that major will guide them towards their first job, and then that job leads to another job. And they might eventually find their space within a certain industry they love or a, a company that they love, and eventually sort of work their way up to the top of that pyramid and really find their their spot, you know, their role, the thing that they've decided that that's, that's who they are professionally. And I realized that my career was actually an inverted pyramid, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you picture it. I knew I wanted to be an architect when I was 12, and I was one of these yeah, these crazy people that even when I went through high school and had other interests, I decided I would still become an architect. And I did two professional degrees, and I got licensed, and I taught at the university level, and I worked for several firms, and you know, I was an architect. But something interesting happened, sort of, as I say, on my way to becoming an architect for the rest of my life. 
And it sort of set in motion three pivot points that I've identified along the way up that inverted pyramid. And in fact, when I, I do a talk on this topic where I draw the inverted pyramid without a top on it, because that's mm-hmm. sort of the crazy thing about this is that I'm not sure I'm done, done. yet, <laughs> which is kind of cool given that I'm, I'm beyond middle age. So, but, you know, the first pivot was after, after years in the world of architecture, I realized that, you know, the design and the business world, our, our ability to kind of converse effectively with our clients around the, the benefits of and the value of design in, in terms of the built environment was really limited. And, and in, this was almost 30 years ago when design and business were not really talked about. Design thinking was not yet out there in the world. It, it, it was there, but it wasn't being talked about the way it is now. And I, my first pivot was this realization that I needed to understand better the business side of the world in order to better broach those two topics. So I went and got an MBA. That launched me into a whole other world of, you know, broader world of innovation and product and service design, ultimately, and spending 10 years with IDEO. And that led actually to the, the second pivot point, which was despite doing amazing design work and developing a lot of really interesting concepts that would have probably solved a lot of critical problems in the world, things weren't really getting out into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah, a statistic. Yeah, as with a lot of Yeah, and, and design and innovation in particular, I think there was one statistic I read years ago, and it may still be true that, you know, nine out of 10 new ideas, this is probably true of many startups as well, never see the light of day for a whole variety of reasons. So I found it very frustrating that, you know, we were doing all this great work and a lot of it never came to fruition. And I realized what was probably sticking or getting in the way was happening outside of the consulting space and on the inside of the organizations we were working with. So I left and went on to this sort of the next pivot, uh, which was to go inside of organizations who were trying to develop an innovation capability and understand how it worked from the inside. What was getting in the way? Mm -hmm. What was maybe stopping these great ideas, whether they came from work with a consulting firm or from an internal group from really, you know, making it out into the world or into the marketplace. And that led to the third pivot, which was the insight that a whole lot of what was standing in the way were the human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't the lack of a great idea. It wasn't the lack of technology. I mean, anything and everything can be built for a price, obviously. But ultimately, it was the way people were working together around those ideas, how decisions were being made, how people were communicating, how people were leading, ultimately. And so that sort of led to the the third and most recent pivot was, you can kind of see a reduction in scale here down to the individual and leadership level, and especially people involved in creative processes, whether they're actually designers or business people who are working and have some kind of mandate to innovate you know, with a, with a group as part of their, their role inside of an organization. So that's ultimately what led me through this path of you know, f- doing a lot of facilitation in the context of the design work to learning about mediation and how to resolve conflict in those processes to ultimately talking to individual, working with individuals in a coaching capacity so that on an individual level, you, people can be developing a heightened you know, ability to, to, to lead in those difficult situations, to lead through a creative process, which is naturally you know, ambiguous and um, multifaceted. There's no one right answer. So mm-hmm. that's, 
it's a sort of the, the, the most concise version of my story that I've been able to come up with so far. So it's still a work in progress. Well, and I love hearing about it because I think you're so right that a lot of times we have this rigid idea or conception of what our career should look like or what success looks like. Mm-hmm. And you're right. You know, it's kind of this, we get more and more specialized. We move up and up and up. And I think it's so cool to have somebody, you know, in a position like yours, who's kind of thrown that away and been like, I'm going to make up a new shape that works for me that I'm passionate about and, yeah. and yeah. be so flexible. Well, and to be to be honest about it, the first pivot was the hardest. I mean, it was really hard to leave what, you know, I, I mean, the architecture world was something I had invested a huge amount of time. And I, again, it was something I had a passion for from a very young age. And I followed that passion and made a lot of, you know, investments in terms of time and education and, you know, I getting licensed and all that stuff. And so the first time you you realize there's something else you're meant to do, or you feel that there's something else you're meant to do. It's really hard. I mean, it took me four years to finally decide I'm going to take the leap out of that profession. And it gets a little bit easier. I mean, leaving a place like Audio, which had been, you know, my dream job coming out of business school, it was like one of the only types of work I could imagine back in the mid nineties that would naturally blend design and business. Fortunately, there's a lot of the more of those options now than there were 20 some odd years ago, it, it was only slightly less hard it, because again, I'm like, why am I, you know, this why is, am I why am I leaving? Um, so and so, but it gets, but I'll, I'll tell you by the time I'm where I am right now, it's like, you know what, it, it all work out. And that's a big part of what I've learned from my coaching training and working with coaches myself is that there are so many possibilities out there. And oftentimes we are the ones that are sort of limiting our ability to see what they might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I'm i so interested and excited to talk to you about coaching mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of what, you know, this audience in particular might be able to learn from it. I think for myself and maybe for others, I'm less familiar with the idea of a coach mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of help in designing your life or designing your career. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us are a lot more familiar with therapy mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of those roles. So I, I would love to hear what you see as the role of of a coach. Like, what do you do as a coach? Yeah. Would it be helpful to first maybe distinguish between coaching and those other Yes, Those other totally, kind of helping yeah. professions. Yeah, because you, you raise a really important point and, and mentoring is the other one I always like to call out is something that is related but different. So, you know, the biggest difference between therapy and coaching is that with therapy, you know, there's really something that needs to be healed. And it's oftentimes mm-hmm. connected with a past event or a set of experiences that impair an individual's emotional functioning in, in the present and coaching, on the other hand, which is what I find so marvelous about it, is fundamentally future-oriented. There's absolutely no reason to know anything as a coach about somebody's background, which seems weird because people want to tell you their whole background <laughs> as if it's relevant. And a lot of times it, it's, it, it is, but a lot of times it's not. And, and so coaching is fundamentally focused on what the future could hold. And it's based on an underlying belief that really nothing needs to be fixed. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the individual and and again, th- th- there's nothing you know necessarily wrong in in there may or may not be in the therapy world, and oftentimes people will use these in uh, conjunction. There'll be people who are working with a therapist and a coach, but coaching actually is is, is predicated on the belief that the client can, is really capable of determining the best path forward if they're guided in new ways of looking at the possibilities and new ways of making sort of deliberate choices as opposed to passively kind of letting life happen to them. So 
I always like to say, and I'm sure I got this from someone else, is that, you know, coaching really helps us get out of our own way. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference between coaching and mentoring is a little bit more gray because I'll hear people use those terms interchangeably. And the biggest difference is that a mentor or an advisor will draw upon their own personal experience as a way to provide guidance and make recommendations. So in other words, I might say to you, you know, Ariel, when I was you know, looking for a job, here's what I did, or mm-hmm. here's something, you know, you might do, or et cetera. And a coach will really resist doing that. It's really hard to not do that because you people will ask you, well, what did you do? And what would you recommend? And periodically, you'll, you'll kind of collaboratively brainstorm on some ideas. But ultimately, what a coach is trying to do is enable the individual person that they're coaching to identify what those potential next steps are or some ideas for things they might try. And the reason why this is sort of critical is that it actually is more sustainable. It leads to a more sustainable outcome. People use the example of like telling your kids what to do Mm -hmm. and like, how well does that work? Right. Like (laughs) people will oftentimes they'll nod and pay lip service to something advice you've given them, but if it isn't something they've fundamentally sort of a, a, a conclusion they've come to on their own, the odds are it's not really something that's going to really have impact and be something they're really going to commit to and take mm-hmm. action on. So coaching is really about enabling sort of sort of three basic things, um, you know, identifying what, uh, you know, w- w- what the dream might be, something that someone might be yearning for and can't quite articulate it or imagine it. And then the second part is making some identifying and making some deliberate choices like around some different various possibilities and then ultimately committing to action uh, mm-hmm. and doing it. And it's sort of a cycle that can be repeated. It's sort of iterative, a lot like, it's a lot like prototyping. Mm-hmm. Just <laughs> with just your life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, you need to sort of, you know, there's this balance between action and reflection. And in the coactive model of uh, coaching in which I've been trained, they work in tandem really nicely in the same way that if you think about prototyping and that being an iterative discovery process, you know, there's usually a question or something you're trying to understand or something you want to explore. But if all you did was sit and think about that for a long time, you'd never take any action or you'd find ways to not take action mm-hmm. or reasons to to not change the status quo. If on the other thing, you're just taking action with no reflection, it's like, you know, the proverbial throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. It's, it's really random. It's not terribly efficient. It's probably not going to get you where you need to go. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. Even when you are in field, you can't be with your participants 24-7. But there's one thing that can be. They're smartphones. Dscout is a remote research platform leveraging just that, which saves you from missing the moments that matter. Set up a diary study and see your participants' daily lives in context. Use DScout Live and conduct interviews on a platform actually built for research. Bring your own participants on board or handpick from their 100,000 person scout pool. To start connecting with more people more impactfully, head to dscout.com mm. Probably not gonna get you where you need to go, at least not you know, very quickly. So it's a cycle of sort of working with a coach to identify what's it that I'm trying to achieve or what's the thing I want to learn more about myself or who do I want to become? And then 
very quickly identifying some things that you can try or reflect on or explore, derive the insights and learning from that, and that will yield the next thing to do. And that's exactly how prototyping works, which is why I think the other reason I maybe not accidentally came into coaching is I saw an awful lot of connections with the design process, right? Because both are very much discovery driven. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if, you know, as a coach, you see people struggling with that idea of action, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm sure there are a lot of people who, if they're thoughtful enough to, you know, engage a coach like yourself yeah, that are, you know, probably thinking a lot. And I wonder if you ever see a struggle with, you know, people being willing or ready to take these different actions that are kind of required for progress. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we live in our heads, right? This is there's a lot of neuroscience behind coaching, which I'm just beginning to learn about, and it's absolutely fascinating. And and there's a lot of reasons why coaching actually works. It isn't just one of these kind of a a fad kind of thing. And what what we do is we oftentimes are making decisions based solely on what we think in our head. And what we think in our head oftentimes are stories of our own creation, right? Mm-hmm. How we see the world sometimes is it's exactly how we see it, but it isn't, we're oftentimes interpreting it in ways that are, are false. Um, there's a great term in coaching called the saboteur. And the saboteur voice is essentially that voice in your head telling you, you can't do that, or you don't have enough experience, which is one I hear a lot is the classic imposter syndrome, you're not ready to do that, or you'll never be uh, sufficiently trained to do that role, or you don't have the background, etc. And the saboteur is essentially, as someone once told me, your best friend who gives you all the bad, all the wrong advice, (laughs) because it's a, it's a mechanism for protection, right? At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, our, our, our brains are wired to protect us from pain and enable us to seek reward, right? Those are the two most basic motivations for everything we do in life. And so when you're on the edge of or considering doing something that's different and that maybe has risk, like all great things do, right? Mm -hmm. It's anything that changes the status quo, that voice, or there could be different voices of versions of this voice will try to protect you and say, don't do that, or you're not ready to do that. And so there's a bit of self-compassion that goes with it and a recognition that that's what's happening. But then, you know, the next step is to sort of kindly tell that voice to go take a hike. (laughs) In coaching, we talk about giving the saboteur another job. Like, can you go do my laundry? I'm busy working on this, like, you know, other thing. And and there is some humor, you know, because it's a very serious thing. On on the other hand, it's you have complete agency in how you manage these different voices that are telling you what to do or not to do. And so the getting to action is the proof, right? When people have... Uh, lack of confidence, for example, that comes from first having some courage to try something and then seeing some competency once you try it. You know, you might have to try something a few different times and then realize, okay, I can actually see myself doing this. And then that's where confidence comes from, right? So I always think about it's these three steps that happen to be all be C words, um, but it all comes from action. Mm-hmm. You have to take action in order to start to move move into some kind of transformative uh, way. Yeah. Well, and what are some of the actions that you recommend for your clients or you, you know, kind of guide them through? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of really fabulous aspects of coaching that I could touch on and, and, and homework um, or action in between the sessions is, is the biggest area that, you know, addresses what you just asked. 
a lot of people think that the magic of coaching happens exclusively in the session with the coach. And although oftentimes you can sense a shift happening in real time through the conversation that, that the coach and the, and the, and the coachee are having, the real magic oftentimes happens between the sessions. So a, a lot of the times the cadence of coaching is like biweekly, for example, where there's a week or so in between the times that, that we'll meet because the idea is that you're out trying something or doing something or reflecting on something. And oftentimes we'll kind of co-design that together. Uh, as a coach, I, I might come up with an idea for something and, and make it into a request or even a challenge. There's a really cool idea about in the coaching world about coming up with a really crazy challenge, like something that's, you know, if someone's trying to write a book, for example, and they're stuck and you say, well, can you have a manuscript for me, you know, in a week? And they'll be like, no, but uh, they can make a counteroffer and say, but how about uh, in two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So you're sort of getting off of, the, off of the starting block. So there are a lot of different ways to construct homework. Um, and there are also a lot of techniques that we use, you know, in the, in the session as well to kind of almost simulate what some of the action might be that people uh, are, are hoping to take, but they can't quite, you know, they're kind of in a stuck mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would one of those... What would one yeah. of those simulations be yeah, like well, or look like? You know, it, it, I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this this morning of like a homework in a way that I, it sort of was a simple reframe of what this individual was trying to do, but framing it in, in terms of something that she was actually quite adept at doing. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it is a little bit of trickery, but um, it actually worked really well. So I, I, I worked with an individual who was trying to make a, a significant career shift at a, at a much later age in life so that you know, a couple different things working that, that added some difficulty to that, that endeavor. And this was an individual who was very hesitant to go out and just do even informational interviews that really didn't believe that they had the qualifications to move into the world that they desired to move into, even though they had a graduate degree and they had a lot of years of experience. And yet this same individual was a very intrepid traveler. Um, hmm. She would travel all over the world on a, you know, and go to crazy places and do all sorts of really, ex, you know, amazing ex exploratory things. And I said, well, if you just, let's, let's think about your, you know, your, your job search as a walkabout. She actually came up with the word walkabout. I said, it could just be a series of little travel adventures, right? Because if you think about what you're doing in the early stages of a job search where you might be just doing, inter, uh, you know, informational interviews, you're, you're going on an exploration to a place you don't know, talking to people you've never met, but you have sort of an agenda. There's something you want to see there, or maybe you just want to learn something new. And that reframe of a job search or series of informational interviews to uh, it, reframing it as a series of travel adventures, <laughs> and she came up with the word walkabout, um, mm -hmm. which I know is a, a British term, actually. Um all of a sudden, she's like, I can do that. Okay, I, I now can see how I could actually, you know, plan and schedule and, and execute a series of job interviews because it's now been framed in, in terms of something I am familiar with, in terms of something I do have confidence around. So that's a kind of taking a basic kind of request, but framing it in a way that places the, the individual in a place that is starts at a place of familiarity mm -hmm. and then allows them to kind of move from there. Yeah. It's so interesting, you know, to hear as you're talking about your clients who are, you know, kind of moving through 
somewhat uncomfortable situations. I think career transitions yeah. and, and things like that can often be very scary for us because we so often, um, you know, have so much of our identity tied up in mm-hmm. what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting to realize that so many of the things that make us afraid in those moments of transition are really about framing. Mm-hmm. Right. That it's like yeah. it's the exact same action that you're asking her to do. But now it's kind of interesting and fun. Yes. As opposed to this really intimidating and scary process of, you know, being vulnerable and like putting herself in uncomfortable right. positions. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm wondering, you know, as you walk me through these different activities that you mm-hmm. do with clients, it makes me wonder how much is the same client to client and how much is different? You know, like, are you redesigning mm. this client coach relationship mm. every time you go around or, you know, is it 50% is kind of, you know, shared across different relationships or what does that look like? That's really interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things um, I've, I've had on my to-do list was to sort of take a step back for myself and see, are there themes that mm-hmm. I see regularly? But the real question I think is, you know, what do these relationships look like? And they're all unique, right? I mean, the the interesting thing about a coach is that, you know, you really need to show up with being incredibly present as, you know, is, is, is the way of many things these days that it really can work to your benefit. And just there's a term called dan- dancing in the moment with mm-hmm. the client. So whatever they bring up in that particular session is what you're focused on then. It, it, there may be some carryover from a prior conversation. You may be, you know, talking about the homework assignment. If there's a desire to be, hold, be held accountable, a lot of clients want you to hold them accountable for doing the thing they said they would. But each session really is a unique session unto itself. And so individually, they can, you know, client to client, they're all unique. And yet there probably are some common themes that people are struggling with. I mean, certainly career and career transition are oftentimes the trigger that bring people to to a coach to begin with. And so I could probably think about, you know, kind of some classic scenarios that I I tend to hear about in, you know, the coaching, that type of coaching that I do. Um you know, it's usually a transition associated with the desire to move into a new job or to desire to change careers altogether. It could also be a transition within an organization, uh, somebody that's being tapped in, you know, for a leadership role or has a desire to progress to a leadership role. That's a, just a different type of transition. And so thematically, those, you know, th- those are pretty common. How you engage with an individual one-on-one in their particular session is really unique to that, to that individual and what, what they need at that particular time and sort of going, going with where they need to go, which is really fascinating. It's the, the, client, the coach does not hold the agenda. Mm-hmm. The client, client determines the agenda and the coach is going along with them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think I have this innate desire to, you know, get a list of like the five activities that mm. a career coach would do with you over five sessions or something mm. like that. Mm. But you know, as you talk through it, it becomes so apparent that it's much more, you know, the five activities that I would design for myself and having someone to walk with me on that path as opposed to, you know, kind of being alone and afraid in the yeah. woods. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, there are a bunch of different activities that, I mean, some that have come from my training, some that I've invented along the way. Mm-hmm. And you you really can't go into a session with the, and here's what we're going to do. The only time I do that is the very first session, which mm-hmm. is a discovery session, which is 90 minutes and it's really laying the foundation for everything that's to come. 
And I've designed this, I invented this, this one activity that I do every time now because it was, it's the dinner party mm-hmm. and it's, I won't, I won't reveal how it works because if anybody listening becomes a client, I don't <laughs> want them to know it. It's this uh, way of revealing values and value and understanding of values and uh, self-awareness on the part of the, the client of what their values are is at the heart of a, a lot of effective coaching because mm-hmm. it becomes an important touchstone. So even though I, I have sort of a grab bag of things that I've I've used in the past or things that I've been taught or things that I've designed and invented, I don't go into any given session thinking this is what I'm going to use today, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of need to, a lot of it is improv, right? Is receiving what the client is telling you, listening and hearing it, and then figuring out in that moment what to do next. And mm-hmm. oftentimes it's asking a question or saying, let's try this, right? There are a lot of very interesting little activities you can do in in real time together, not necessarily just outside as part of their homework that are pretty effective and are part of my kind of standard playbook, but none of it's premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to hear you say that the first conversation is really about figuring out values. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I don't know, I guess, you know, part of me thinks, don't we all have similar values? But you're right there. You know, for example, the woman you spoke about, it sounds Mm -hmm. like discovery, exploration are things Mm -hmm. that she highly, highly values and would need to be part of, you know, a fulfilling career. I guess it, it leads me to the question of, are there other kind of milestones for you like that along the coaching path where it's like, Mm. first we determine values, then we determine, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, Actions, career options, I don't know. Interestingly enough, there's, at least in my view of coaching, and I'm sure it'll evolve over the years as I do more of it, and everybody eventually, despite their training, kind of develops their own kind of process. But for me right now, the ultimate thing to focus on really are the goals, right? And the goals and or a life purpose, that's another thing oftentimes that kind of is coupled with all of that is a almost like your North Star, it's a mm-hmm. term a lot of people like to use instead, is even if you don't have a particular goal, and some people do and some people don't, I mean, there's a the idea about the, you know, having a capital A or big A agenda item that you're coming into coaching with. And sometimes though there are little, little A's or small A, if mm-hmm. you think about the word agenda, and sometimes they work in tandem. Sometimes the little A agenda items are, you know, stepping stones to that big one. Sometimes they're disconnected. So mm-hmm. a client may say, I, ultimately I want to start my own business, but I also in the meantime want to get healthy and want to start working out more. Right. So mm-hmm. one's a little A agenda because that you can start right away. The Setting up your own business might take a while. Sometimes the the little A agenda is the thing that, you know, is going to get them, you know, one step closer to that, that mm-hmm. big A agenda. But sometimes people don't even have a goal. They're just like, I just want to figure out what I'm meant to do with my mm-hmm. life, right? And that's more of a larger life purpose. So I, I think... It, it within there's a the overall career or the overall coaching arc rather is towards a goal that or something they're trying to figure out or make progress towards um, that was the trigger for entering into coaching, mm-hmm. and the coach's role is to really continue to monitor where are we relative to that right. Um, I've worked with clients also where their goals changed right or mm-hmm. they've accomplished the goal and they're ready to do it they're immediately ready to do something else mm-hmm. right. Oftentimes that might also be the the point where your coaching relationship is is complete, right? Where you know, you, you everybody moves on. Mm-hmm. So it's completely determined by by the individual coachee when that happens. And yeah. the coach's goal is to help stay aligned with 
whatever the stated goal is or whatever it is they're trying to accomplish at that at that point in time. Yeah. I feel like I'm a little bit in awe imagining someone coming to me and saying, help me figure out what my life purpose is. It seems like such an intimidating or, you know, huge endeavor. It it is. And, 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 uh, it's an exploration, right? Mm -hmm. So there is an activity that are a couple different activities that can help that a, a coach can guide somebody through to help them actually, you know, start to elicit, you know, insights into that life purpose. But again, that's something that could change, right? Mm-hmm. And it again, it's another prototype. Yeah. It's something you might come up with a, a working version of. And then over time, as you sort of play with it or try it on and live with it, mm-hmm. that you you realize it needs some tweaking. Or mm-hmm. it's really, it's a little bit of that, but more of this other thing. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and it makes me think that so often, you know, when we hear things like life purpose, I think instantly we have this conception of right and wrong, or there's this one answer, this mm. thing that I need to discover. And once I dig up this diamond, like mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have, mm-hmm. you know, my life purpose. Yeah. And I think hearing you kind of talk through how you approach that request, it's much more, it feels much more doable. It's much more approachable to say, I'm going to like start thinking about this. I'm going to start, you know, kind of messing around with different ideas of what this could be versus I'm going to figure out my life purpose, which yeah. is so daunting. Exactly. Or the belief that there's, I have one life purpose, yeah, exactly. right? I mean, if you think back to the diagram I sort of described of my career as this inverted pyramid or without a top to it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if I had just believed that, and I did for a long time, that architecture was my life and how could I do anything else. You know, that was the choice I made. I would probably still be an architect and maybe a very unhappy one. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there are things that we believe because it's what society tells us. I mean, we live, we don't live in isolation. We live in a world that sort of informs and influences how we think about what we should do, right? If we have this kind of education, here's what we should do. Or we live in this kind of a community, here's what you should do. Or we came from this family of origin, et cetera. But that's the, you know, a a social mindset. That's not what might really be in your heart of hearts of what you want to do. And so coaching really helps bridge, bridge those two, because we do live in real, a real world, right? We, We, coaching is not about creating a fantasy world that you can never actually, you know, find your way into or to create for yourself. But yeah, it 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 is about sort of opening yourself up to it, looking at new new ways of looking at possibilities, which also is a design exercise. That's the mm-hmm. other interesting. That's what designers do naturally: is look for you go wide and look for divergence before you converge on a solution. It's almost exactly what a lot of coaching is about: mm-hmm. is first considering lots of things before you pick one thing. Yeah, well, and it's you know as you describe that, it's interesting to think about how. It sounds like probably part of coaching as well is giving people the, you know, a safe space Mm. to put away the model that they have in their head for what it's supposed to look like, Mm -hmm. you know, to just have the freedom to say, maybe I'm somebody who's, well, that's why distilling it down like to values Mm -hmm. and also, you know, strengths. So, you know, there's a, a, you know, Gallup Strength Finders is a tool that I've started to develop to, to use as an adjunct kind of aspect of my coaching. Interesting. And the concepts of values and strengths or talents, which are all interwoven because they're sort of at the core of who we are, it is the the way to do exactly what you just described. If you sort of remove the labels or the roles or the job descriptions mm-hmm. and go back to sort of essentially 
what you value, what your natural talents are, that's a way to reveal different shapes. I love the term shapes, right? Mm -hmm. Different shapes for how you spend your life, right? Mm -hmm. And and by the way, it isn't just like, I don't use the term career coaching because it is a holistic view. A career tends to be the trigger, but oftentimes decisions made about career affect Everything what happens else. in your relationships or how you spend your time. And so what I found interesting is that I've there are a few clients that I've been working with for, you know, more than a half a year now, let's say, some much more than, you know, more than a year. But what started out as a conversation about career has become also a conversation about relationships or mm-hmm. about because they're all intertwined, right? Mm-hmm. Decisions, things you say yes to in one area might suggest you say no in other areas. And then that changes over time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Laura, I'm wondering how similar or different you feel like the client coach relationship and that journey that you go on together is from, let's say, a project that you did at IDEO during your time there? Mm, that's interesting. You know, you know, there's this tool that we used to use at IDEO called the Mood Meter. And um, it sort of was a way to set expectations with a client about kind of what the journey with us as consultants were going to be. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, it was sort of like a sine wave. If you picture like a horizontal line with a and over time, you know, that represents time and a smiley face above the line and a frown face below the line. You know, we draw a squiggly line that kind of at various points in the project went up and down above and below that line. And it was a great way of sort of setting expectations that sometimes this is going to be a lot of fun. And sometimes you're going to be like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. How are we ever going to make a decision? How are we going to reach our, you know, our, our desired outcome? And I think sometimes for that, you know, coaching and, and, really any kind of project can take that kind of arc. Certainly not knowing, not knowing, a, there's no prescriptive outcome. I mean, there's a desired outcome, but what it actually looks like is the thing that's to be determined. And I mm-hmm. think that's maybe what's in, what, what a, you know, a creative or design or innovation process might look like that's similar to uh, the way a, a, a coaching relationship might look over time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I answered your question though. <laughs> You you answered the question. I think, you know, what you're saying is that both require, both are creative processes, both require flexibility and a willingness to be comfortable and uncomfortable. Yeah, it's like open-mindedness and and it's just, I I like the term discovery driven. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not hypothesis driven. It isn't like, here's the solution we think should pop out the other end. Let's now work to prove or disprove that, right? Mm -hmm. That'd be the same as a client saying, you know, I think I, I think I need to continue to be a lawyer, but I'm not sure, like, can you help me figure that out, right? That's sort of starting with the hypothesis as opposed to, I'm not sure what's next for me. I, I want to figure that out. Right? Yeah. 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 Coming in with that open mindset. Exactly. Well, and, you know, as we talk about kind of some of the clients that, or the characteristics of clients that, you know, you enjoy working with most mm-hmm. or that maybe have the most favorable outcomes mm-hmm. of the interaction. I'm wondering, yeah, how would you describe that person? You just said yeah. someone who comes in with an open mind. Totally. Yeah. Open mind, a willingness to learn something new. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of this is about, it's about self-discovery, right? Um, and so if you come in with like, well, here's who I am and I have a fixed mindset about that and I just need help with my resume, right? That mm-hmm. is not a good use of a coach, right? There are other professionals that can help you with something like that. So I think 
a desire and willingness to learn and open-mindedness to what you might learn, right? Mm-hmm. Being open-minded to discovering something about yourself or about a possibility that hadn't really occurred to you. A desire to be collaborative. I mean, this is another thing that's really unique and I think really powerful about the client-coach relationship as opposed to a client you know, or a student teacher or a uh, employee boss kind mm-hmm. of relationship is that it's highly collaborative, really. It's, it is, it's, it's empowered. There's this concept of the designed alliance, mm-hmm. which is um, a tool that comes out of coactive coaching um, that I now actually use outside of coaching in when I facilitate large groups. That's a different story. But in the coaching context, it's another one of these things that's established at that very first session. And it's essentially, how are we going to work together? How are mm-hmm. we going to be with each other? Client, what do you need from me as a coach? And then I can make similar requests. And it becomes this living document that, and it's literally written down so that if, you know, weeks or months later, something's not working, we can refer to it and say, mm-hmm. hey, what do we need to change, right? Mm-hmm. So, that's where the collaborative nature comes in. It isn't just like, you know, the client shouldn't have the expectation that I tell you what I'm trying to do and you're going to give me some answers. It's like, we're going to work together on this. So the desire to have that kind of interplay and do it in a, a mutually empowered way is, is I think, what makes for a really healthy and productive client-coach relationship. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like both parties are you know, I don't, co-responsible. I don't know. That seems like a funny way to put it, yeah. but there's so much that I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, thinking about a coach or these different people who can help, so mm-hmm. to speak, in your life. Right. Sometimes it's like, oh, I have this problem. I'm going to engage this person and they're going to solve it. Right. But it's so much about you facilitating this person solving it for themselves. Yeah. And back to the design process, just because I think there's so many great connections. The most productive design projects that I was ever involved with were those where we would engage the client to co-design the solution with us. Mm-hmm. Now, there are obviously... A, you know, appropriate points in that process to bring them in. But as soon as they understood what was going on and had a hand in actually interpreting, you know, or discovering the opportunities and kind of almost co-designing the solution with you, again, it's back to that sustainability of the outcome. The mm-hmm. odds are that's something that's actually going to, you know, stick. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of a new product or service, it may actually get launched. In the case of coaching, those behaviors, those actions, those new ways of of being and doing become part of that person's, you know, life. Mm-hmm. And so that collaborative kind of co-design, mutually empowered relationship is, I think, critical to successful coaching. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The more we feel ownership, the more, yeah. you know, we actually hold on to something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, that last comment reminded me of what you were talking about at the beginning of the episode where, you know, going and working in these organizations is really what got you inspired in coaching because you saw that it wasn't actually a lack of technology or resources. Mm-hmm. It was really people. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, kind of as we're, we're getting to the end of the conversation, what is your hope or what is, you know, what have you seen in terms of how coaching or engaging in these coaching activities, behaviors can, you know, have that change that you were hoping for in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've really come to realize and I'm really advocate, have become a real advocate for, especially working with uh, emergent or executive design leadership Mm -hmm. is 
the, the leadership aspect of it, right? It's so easy to get caught up in learning, you know, the craft, which is critical, right? And understanding new technology and, and that, all of that. But the real leaders of the future, and if we really believe, as I do, that design is a potentially, you know, really powerful strategic tool in creating change in the world and all the things that, you know, we know need need to be changed, then we need to up their game as leaders. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still amazed, maybe amazed, but maybe not so surprised that a lot of people that I know, and I have students who um, go off and work inside of large tech companies in their, you know, the UX or other design groups. And oftentimes they're still seen as people who just make things look nice, right? Or mm-hmm. make the screen work. And design has such a potential to be a leader at the front end of that creative process to determine what is the problem to be solved. How do we frame it? How do we explore it? How do we interpret the insights from research, et cetera? That the skills associated to do that really are these human-to-human communication skills, right? The ability to understand how to, how to listen, mm-hmm. how to have empathy, how to ask powerful questions, how to frame, et cetera, all of those things that I was mentioning. So what I always like to say is that, you know, design design leadership is the currency that you should be trying to cultivate or trying to invest in in the same way you invest in, you know, your craft. Mm-hmm. And I think um, places of education and other, you know, programs and professional development programs inside of organizations are just starting to to see that and see the benefit of enabling development of those skills. And I think coaching can help with that as well. Whether, you know, I work one-on-one, but I also work with teams of, of leaders and, and te- project teams also that are trying to create better outcomes and affect change. At the end of the day, this is all about, you know, affecting change in the world. That's what design and innovation essentially is, is creating some kind of change. And so being a leader, within a system of that where that change is happening right is absolutely key thanks for listening today if you want to continue this conversation join us in the slack group for a Q&A with Laura next week you can find more details on twitter and if you aren't already a member of our slack group feel free to request an invite under the community tab on our website, mixed-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks today to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time.